Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with former Russian President Medvedev calling on Texas to secede from the United States and bring on another civil war as an army of armed right-wing militias head for the southern border, while more than 25 Republican governors throw their support behind Texas Governor Abbott who is defying federal authority, and a 5-4 to four Supreme Court ruling. Joining us is Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Up Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. The host of the Muckrake podcast, his political writing has appeared in publications including the New York Times, the New Republic, Politico, and Salon.com, And his latest book is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Then, with the second anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine less than a month away, we'll look into the real reasons behind this brutal war against a neighbor's country, its people, and culture, and speak with Maria Popova, a professor of political science at McGill University and the scientific co-director of the Jean Monnet Center in Montreal, Canada. Also joining us is Oksana Shevel, a professor of political science and director of the International Relations Program at Tufts University. They are the co-authors of a new book just out, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. Then finally, we'll examine why Democratic leaders are not pushing back against Republican billionaire donors to the GOP who are targeting progressive House Democrats and are prepared to spend over $100 million to primary members of the squad and their allies. Joining us is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic and The American Prospect. We'll discuss his latest article at Slate. The squad is about to fight for its political life. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Up Like Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his political writings have appeared in The New York Times, The New Republic, Politico, and Salon.com. And his latest book is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jared. And could the coming crisis be upon us now? Because there's effectively a huge uh, secession movement underway led by Texas, who's defying federal authority over the southern border. But Governor Abbott is now joined by over 20 Republican governors, many if not most in northern states, to form a kind of new confederacy against the federal government led by Joe Biden, who the Republicans want to portray as being feeble. So how serious is this new secession movement? You know, Ian, for for a while, there's been a lot of saber rattling in this regard, and people have dismissed it, you know, simply as political theater. And oftentimes it is. A lot of times these people are trying to do it for votes and for fundraising. But, you know, if you actually look back in history at what happened with the Civil War, it was the exact same situation. For years and years and years, the politicians in the South were uh, engaging in this political theater uh, for votes and fundraising and support. 
And eventually their supporters and them ended up in a cycle of reinforcement. We're seeing that now. And even this morning, it, it, it came out that there is a, a paramilitary group calling themselves the Army of God that are uh, heading down for the southern border. And part of the reason is because as this political theater gains ground and traction, it starts to become something real. You know, it goes from a performance into something that can actually become violent, that can actually become uh, a, a thing that changes our reality as it is. So I'm not sure if this is necessarily the flashpoint, but I think people need to recognize that even if we are somehow or another to tap dance away from this particular nullification crisis, that this is part of a process of it growing and growing and growing. And until we start to address the actual problems here, it's only going to get worse and we're only going to head towards something very, very real and very, very dangerous. Well, we've reached a point uh, under Trump, who controls the Republican Party and basically gives his orders to uh, this new Christian character that's the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who's actually Trump's toady. And what Trump is clearly doing now is not a surprise. It's a pattern. He doesn't, doesn't necessarily want to make America great again or America first. It's always Donald Trump first. And we've reached a point where there's no such thing in the Republican Party as the national interest. They're not operating in the national interest. You know, I mean, some of the old timers like Mitch McConnell are trying to get a, a Senate deal on the border but it's being essentially blown up by Trump, who's given orders to Mike Johnson uh, not to make a border deal, which is a huge win for Putin. And we don't even know whether Trump is taking orders from Putin or not. And then on top of that, Trump recently called for the economy to tank, to hurt Biden. So in order not to give Biden a win, the Republicans are hurting America. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up Mitch McConnell, because I want to remind people, going back uh, around 2008, 2009, 2010, Mitch McConnell was the one who said that his number one priority was making sure that Barack Obama would not be reelected in 2012. And that sort of a mindset has been percolating within the Republican Party for a while, an anti-national interest uh, uh, push. And it's only grown and grown and grown. And so now you even see a, a point now where Mitch McConnell and Republicans like him, these so-called establishment Republicans, are actually more moderate than people like Mike Johnson and their associates within the MAGA movement. So what has happened now is they're not even hiding these things. They are openly rooting for the country to fall apart and for people to hurt and even possibly die so that they might be able to gain power. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing with Trump, particularly in this run for the presidency that has changed, and I've watched him very closely for eight years. I've been around his supporters. I've been at his rallies. I've talked to a lot of these people. It has gone from let's win an election and let's make the country the way that we want it to we need someone to come in and burn it down to the studs in order to rebuild it, in order to create a dictatorial presidency. And that's what his supporters want. They no longer believe in liberal democracy. They no longer believe in any institution. They truly believe that the only way forward is to burn it down, basically to destroy everything that there is and rebuild it using a dictatorial presidency. And that's what Donald Trump is promising them. And I think anybody who doesn't see that at this point is fooling themselves. Well, clearly, uh, Senator Mitt Romney sees it. On Thursday, he told reporters the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. And the fact that he would communicate to Republican senators and congresspeople that he doesn't want to solve the border problem because he wants to blame Biden for it is really appalling. Now, obviously, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Mitt Romney was the standard bearer of the Republican Party. He was their presidential nominee in 2012. I mean, what's happened to the country? Or most, more importantly, what's happened to the Republican Party? Well, the Republican Party has been on a trajectory towards neo-fascism for decades now. I mean, you know, I, I think that there is a clear line through from uh, the rise of Ronald Reagan 
all the way to the election in 2000, which we need to remind everybody was a stolen election. The Republicans used the institutions in order to steal the presidency. This is a process. And the fact is that a lot of people have looked at this and they've normalized it because they don't want to believe that the country is heading in this direction. And they don't want to believe one of the major parties is neo-fascistic and white supremacist. But that denial has allowed the Overton window of what is normal and what is accepted to move and move and move to the point where Mitt Romney, who was a right-wing candidate in 2012, is now considered more like a Democrat or more like a moderate than he is a right-wing figure. And so we look up and suddenly the country has been transformed to the point where the border deal that you even brought up that has been on the table, that Mitch McConnell has, has put forward, that Mitt Romney wants to support, that Joe Biden has already said that he's willing to sign, this is literally the same type of deal that the Republicans have wanted for decades now. It's a right-wing bill that even Joe Biden is ready to sign, but that's not enough for them because the Overton window of what is normal and what is accepted and what our politics are, it keeps shifting because the Republican Party keeps moving it further and further to the right. And, of course, I've spoken to Trump insiders who, who were inside the Oval Office when he was president. And, of course, the chief of staff, General Kelly, has also gone public about Trump's cruelty. I mean, he really is a venal, cruel person. And the cruelty on the border is such that just recently two children and mother drowned and others trying to cross the Rio Grande were in distress, about to drown. And this coincides with the Texas National Guard closing off the border with razor wire and preventing the Border Patrol, which is a federal agency, from entering that border area. And that's the standoff that's been going on for weeks. And then finally, the Supreme Court ruled five to four uh, against uh, Governor Abbott in Texas, telling them they have to remove the razor wire. And now, as you pointed out, the Republicans and Trump have called upon these uh, right-wing militias to come down armed and support the Texas National Guard. So this is explosive, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think it's really important very quickly to point out that literally, and this is a, a, a deeply held truth within American politics, no one actually wants to solve what's happening at the border. Actually, we, we, all of our politicians and the wealthy need migrants to come into the country to be exploited for less than minimum wage without benefits. They want to have that flow of labor and they want to use these people, particularly because they're in danger of constantly being deported. There's precarity as a motivator. As a, as a motivator. What they do want, the Republican Party, MAGA, is they want that performative cruelty that you're talking about. They want to remind people, particularly people of color and migrants, that they are less than, that they're not as good as white people, and they need to come in and labor or else they could be killed or their families could be deported or separated and or put through any number of cruelties. That's the entire purpose of what's happening right now. What is going on at the border is it is now a showdown between states' power and federal power, which is an ongoing wrestling match that has gone on since the founding of the country. But when that wrestling match starts to get real and when it starts to become dangerous, that's when the entire fabric of liberal democracy itself can be shredded. That's when you get to the point of civil war. That's when you get to the point of outright rebellion. And we have all of the ingredients in place right now. And that motivator that we were talking about, exploiting people for their labor, not paying them what they deserve, uh, using fear to motivate them, and also the idea that white people are better than other races and other peoples, all of those factors are combustible. And we've seen this in the past, both with the Confederacy and the secession of the 19th century and also with fascism and Nazism. All of these things are related and they work together and they have always worked together. And unless we realize what is actually going on here, we're doomed to watch it repeat. Well, at this point, more than 25 Republican governors have declared their support for Governor Abbott which is, in, in effect, a secession movement, isn't it? And as I pointed out earlier, Jared, most of these are red states in the north, many on the Canadian border, yet they're forming a kind of new confederacy. But it seems to be a, a new confederacy that's <laughs> dominated by the north as opposed to the south. You know, obviously, Texas is a part of it, as is Florida. But what's extraordinary about it is that it's more of a divide along the red, red state, blue state, the very divide 
that Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about a while back, saying that this is the new secession. They don't want to live with the rest of uh, the country, the blue states, particularly the more successful states like California and and New York, who, by the way, subsidize these Confederate states. California basically subsidizes uh, Mississippi and Alabama. Absolutely. And I want to go ahead and, and bring up for your listeners a, a parallel in, in terms of what's happening. The Civil War and the secession that led to the Civil War was based on slavery as a way of life and an economic principle. The other motivator that was taking place was not just that slavery was going to be abolished, but also that the South understood that its political power was coming to an end. The way the framers of the Constitution had to make a deal in order to get the Constitution ratified was to more or less hand power over to the South when it came to the presidency and also you know, uh, the federal branches. Eventually, as we started expanding West and we started having this new balance of so-called slave states and free states, the South read the writing on the wall, which led to the election in which Abraham Lincoln won the presidency without even being placed on Southern ballots. The Confederate states understood that their power was at an end, that democracy or, or these institutions were not going to reward them or give them power. The red states, or so-called red states, they understand this. They understand that the, the political tide has been moving, that the votes are not on their side. I want to remind everyone that uh, a Republican has only won the popular vote in this century once. And as that has happened, they start to realize that even the Electoral College and even the minoritarian institutions of the Senate and the House, even the Supreme Court, which they have stolen, these things, they might be able to put a finger in, in the dike to keep it from bursting. But truly what is happening is that the people in the so-called red states understand that society is changing and they do not have control over it. They only have faith in democracy so much as it serves them as a tool and it is no longer serving them. So there are parallels here that are uh, incredibly troubling. And you mentioned the Supreme Court, Jared, which has clearly been captured by a right-wing plutocracy. The vote to uphold federal authority, which is so fundamental to the United States, the vote to uphold federal authority in this challenge from Texas, it was five to four. So there are at least four of these right-wing justices that are pro-secession. Yeah, there's actually a lot that's going on here. You know, we, we expect the Supreme Court to follow ideological lines, but they're, they're very weird and wonky sometimes. They make choices. In this case, um, this was the, you know, federal authority versus state authority, again, has been from the very beginning of, of the, the union. And one of the things that's also taking place that we haven't mentioned yet, and it needs to be brought up here, is that behind all of this, there's a group of wealthy donors and oligarchs within this country who have been funding this entire thing. You know, they're not appearing on ballots. They're not on your TVs. Like, these are people who are basically, they've been pushing all of this rhetoric, all of this propaganda. They want control of the United States of America, and they've more or less corrupted our politics and our institutions. Many of them are totally interested in the idea of a secession movement and having a breakup of the country. Many of them don't want that to happen. They want to push it to the, the border of that using fear-mongering and divisive rhetoric, but, you know, keep the country together in order to expand their power. There's a lot going on in all of this that doesn't take place in the news. It's not in your headlines. It's not in the coverage. And it, it's really hard sometimes to tell exactly where everybody is or where all the pieces are on the chessboard. And when it comes to the Supreme Court, that's simply one of those um, outlets that starts to express a lot of the motivators that we don't even necessarily understand, nor could we possibly understand. But you're right. There are people on, on the uh, Supreme Court right now who would be more than fine if there was a widespread secession movement. So just in closing then, Jared, do you think that there's a chance that Biden and the Democrats can make the case that Trump's GOP is no longer operating in the national interest. You know, there's always been bipartisanship on some fundamental uh, national security issues, but now that's over. It's over. You can see that they're blowing up the border deal in the Senate because Trump's told both the Republicans in the Senate and Mike Johnson's told the House, taking orders from Trump, to block the deal, which is basically not give Biden a win, but to give Putin a win. And it's just appalling and amazing. And then on top of that, as I mentioned, Trump just recently said he wanted the economy to tank. 
Well, that's not patriotic, for God's sake. What the hell is going on here? Why can't people see that, that this is against America? This is, you know, the opposite of patriotism. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if Biden can do it or not. Um, the communication skills that have taken place there, like the, those speeches he's given about MAGA Republicans and fascism uh, reborn, I, I think it was heard by the people who support him, but of course our echo, echo chambers have become almost impenetrable. I think what we're looking at right now with Texas, um, what I am hoping anyway, is something that can replay what happened in 1963 with Alabama and the governor, uh, George Wallace in which he refused to desegregate, and John F. Kennedy was faced with like one of the biggest crises of his presidency. It took an act, it took an act of moral courage to uh, push that forward and, of course, do the right thing. I'm hoping that's what we'll see here, and that could even be something that sort of lowers the temperature in this country and maybe reaffirms you know, the, the, where power should lie and what it should do. But as of right now, when we're speaking about this, I, I'm unsure. I, I don't exactly know where this thing is going, and uh, I, I, I hope for the best, but I'm also prepared for the worst. Well, Jared yates Exxon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Sexton, who's the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Up Like Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his political writing has appeared in publications including The New York Times, The New Republic, Politico, and Salon.com. And his latest book is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. We're going to take a brief station break, and with the second anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine less than a month away, we'll look into the real reasons behind this brutal war against a neighbor's country, its people, and culture. From whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or set a track on the Blue Ridge in the trial of a thousand years. If destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Maria Popova, who is a professor of political science at McGill University and the scientific co-director of the Jean Monnet Centre in Montreal, Canada. And also joining us is Oksana Shevel, who is a professor of political science and director of the international relations programs at Tufts University. They are the co-authors of the new book just out, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Maria Popova and Oksana Shevel. Hello. So let me start with Maria, well, actually to both of you. The second anniversary of Putin's war against Ukraine, which began on February the 24th in 2022, is coming up in less than a month. And how do you see the situation now? Because it's looking very dire for Ukraine in as much as Putin's buddy, Hungary's dictator, Orban, is blocking over 50 billion euros in aid to Ukraine. And uh, Putin's buddy, Donald Trump, has told the Republicans to blow up the deal on the border. They don't want it to be a win for Biden. But in, in denying Biden a win politically, they are also helping Putin get a win in Ukraine. So how do you see it first, uh, the situation first, Maria, and then Oksana? So indeed, the situation is uh, dicey because aid is blocked. But I think it's important for uh, everyone to know that, in fact, Ukraine is holding on and Russia hasn't been able to achieve any uh, major uh, successes of any kind in uh, 2023. On the contrary, uh, Ukraine achieved uh, significant success in the Black Sea. It basically unilaterally uh, reopened, forced uh, Russia to move back and uh, managed to reopen the shipping corridor without any agreement from Russia. So uh, Ukraine is, uh, things are, they're very worried, but they're holding on. 
Now, in terms of where the snags are, I would say that the um, that the American problem is more serious than the European one, um, because the Hungarian dictator, as you mentioned, is blocking things, but uh, may not be able to do so for uh, very much longer. Um, he is one of many. Uh, now, the U.S. Uh, problem, unfortunately, is deeper. And Oksana, what's your take on it? Yes, I, I agree with basically everything Maria just said, um, and I would emphasize that um, you know Ukraine has been um, trying to receive assistance from multiple sources, from in addition to um, the their ability to hold um, the line and, as Maria said, deny Russia anything resembling substantive gains uh, all of this year, despite the problems with supplies and so forth that it's been having. Um, they are also very um, resilient domestically. There is increased domestic production. There are various creative ways that society is trying to um, address things such as production of drones and so forth. So um, it is, um, you know, yes, it is a big problem with the situation in the United States. Uh, but I think there is still a possibility that uh, not only that things here might change, although that's a big question, but all of these various other actors that are trying to support Ukraine, both in Europe and domestically, uh, would still uh, basically deny Russia the goals that it seeks. So ever since this war began, I have been puzzled by the extent to which the US has in many ways held back on allowing Ukraine to defend itself in a way that is meaningful in the sense that you really have to defeat Putin. And that doesn't mean you win everything, but at least it seems to me that we've set these red lines from day one. Oh, you can't have this missile. You can't have these tanks. You can't have the F-16s. Then months later, we agree to ship the weapons much, much later than they were first needed. And that recently gave the Russians plenty of time to build up formidable defenses, which has left us stalled in this kind of World War I type trench warfare standoff. So do you guys have any sense of what is going on on the American side? Why, why have we been so afraid to upset Putin? And he clearly has no interest in any, any peace deal. He makes maximalist demands and he, in effect, I think, and I talked the other day with Nina Khrushcheva, who's the great-granddaughter of, of Khrushchev, that maybe Putin's part of his motives to invade was to make himself a wartime president so that he could stay in power forever. And these elections coming up, of course, they'll be rigged, but he has the advantage of being a wartime president over a war that he started. So Maria first. So... It's it's definitely um, the case that I mean first uh, I'll point out that the the war really started uh, in 2014, so he has been in effect a wartime president since 2014 when he first annexed Crimea and it gave him a huge domestic boost. Um, on the American um, sort of escalation management strategy. I, I I think you are uh, absolutely right that America has definitely held back and um, its strategy has been to allow Ukraine to survive, but not really to allow it to push really hard. And in the very beginning of this full scale invasion in 22, um, I think the argument for this escalation management was stronger. Uh, the argument uh, was that Putin started this full-scale invasion with a uh, very uh, serious, basically, nuclear threat, uh, saying that if anyone dared stop Russia, there would be consequences uh, never seen before, uh, a clear um, reference to uh, a nuclear threat. So it was reasonable in the beginning for the U.S. to be very cautious. However, in the last two years, uh, Putin's uh, nuclear threats have not only subsided, but also we've seen actions that show that when Russia is pushed uh, back, it retreats rationally. It doesn't escalate, it retreats. It responds response to uh, being defeated militarily uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine by abandoning uh, the gains. So the, the American um, administration, in my view, really should have updated, uh, should have 
maybe by the summer of 22, should have realized uh, that Putin is, in fact, bluffing with the nuclear threats and that if Ukraine is given uh, the conventional uh, capabilities to really push Russia out, uh, Russia will um, rationally respond to that and uh, withdraw and sort of wait for a better opportunity and not escalate to uh, World War Three. Uh, the fact that the, the American uh, administration hasn't really updated and has not abandoned the escalation management uh, strategy is uh, partly responsible for this uh, stalemate. And Oksana, what do you, what's your opinion? Yes, I, I, in addition to agreeing with what Maria just said, I will just add that I think another fear on the U.S. side and sort of Western ally side more generally is that what it would mean if, say, Russia is quote-unquote defeated in Ukraine and what kind of instability it might generate in Russia. So this notion that sort of the devil that we know is better than the devil we don't know, what if there is, you know, disintegration? I mean, Daradis talks about what if Russia were to collapse, it's, it's defeated, all of these scenarios. Uh, there could be, you know, nuclear proliferation to various republics and all of these kind of doomsday um, fears. But I think that is, you know, part of the problem that um, these, what would happen in Russia if Putin is defeated in Ukraine, first of all, we don't know. But second of all, I think there is really little reason to think that there would be some sort of collapse of the country. Nobody's talking about marching um, into Moscow with troops. As Maria said, Putin already was denied a lot of his goals and so-called red lines in Ukraine, the territory that Ukraine liberated in the fall of last year, were officially incorporated into Russian constitution. So we can say there has been this kind of threat to Russian territorial integrity as they define their territory, and yet nothing happened. But I think we do know quite, you know, with some certainty that what happens if Russia is allowed to prevail in Ukraine. The kind of repercussions, not just for Ukraine and the people in Ukraine, what would mean the occupation, but for European security, for emboldening other autocrats. And I think these fears really should be guiding Western policymaking more than um, these kind of abstract predictions, not really based on fact that there could be some sort of dramatic um, disintegration of entire Russian state and various warlords running around with nuclear weapons. But I think some in the West fear that as well. So let's turn to much of what your book brings to the table, along with the history of this relationship between these two countries, one of which now Russia does not believe that Ukraine is a real country in terms of your book, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. Let me focus, though, on what has become the centerpiece of Russian propaganda, and it's been, to many, in many ways, it's been believed on, in elements of the American left that this is all America's fault and it's all about NATO expansion. But I recall in 2014, uh, the Euro was not about NATO expansion, it was about entry into the EU. And it always seemed clear to me that what was going on here is that the people in Ukraine want democracy and the rule of law to get rid of thieving kleptocrats and, and crooked politicians and to have the kind of governments that they have in the rest of Western Europe. But on the other hand, what Putin is offering is gangster government, people like the dictator next door in Belarus, and he has no interest. So is he more afraid of democracy in Ukraine than he is of NATO expansion, Eastwood? So what we argue um, in the book, and we do uh, try indeed to push very uh, strongly against uh, the idea that NATO expansion is a driving force here, is that uh, Putin is not necessarily afraid uh, of anything, really, but is emboldened and um, has for a, a long time wanted to establish full political control over Ukraine. Now, um, this has been a process that has um, that has 
uh, evolved between the two countries uh, over the last 30 years, where uh, the more that Russia wanted to impose political control over uh, Ukraine and sort of turn it into a vassal similar to uh, Belarus next door, as you mentioned, uh, the more Ukraine has pulled away and uh, has committed to a... Um, to a regime that is very different uh, from the Russian regime, to European integration, to democracy, uh, to the rule of law. And um, indeed, the timeline of, uh, of Russia's uh, increasing attacks on Ukraine absolutely does not uh, map onto uh, any uh, movement by Ukraine towards NATO. I mean, Ukraine is even today not uh, recognized, uh, not any time, any uh, closer to NATO membership than it was uh, for all of these years. Uh, the 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 steps that Ukraine took, as you mentioned, were steps towards European integration and uh, steps away from uh, political control uh, by Russia through um, oligarchs and through corrupt networks. And this is what triggered uh, Russia's aggressive and increasingly aggressive uh, tactics towards Ukraine. Oksana, what's your opinion? I'll just add, yes, I'll add to this, that when in our book, when we go over the last 30 years in the history of Ukrainian-Russian relations, the thing that becomes really clear, and this is also an important piece of evidence against this sort of it's all about NATO uh, expansion argument, is that Russia's grievances against Ukraine went much, much deeper than Ukrainian foreign policy orientation. And in fact, so Russian objections to this Ukrainian eventually expressing desire to join Euro-Atlantic family uh, in the second half of 2000s is preceded by many years of Putin complaining, and even before uh, Yeltsin government as well, to somewhat lesser extent, about all sorts of domestic policies that Ukrainians pursued that Russia did not like. Anything from language policy to policy of historical memory to local democratic, even local governance reforms. So this sort of notion that Maria said that Russia seeing Ukraine as a vassal and really the goal being political control of entire Ukraine, and that goal only strengthened um, with Putin, especially in the latter term of his presidency, that has been there way, way before NATO. And in fact, objections to Ukrainian NATO aspirations follow this uh, coming to power of the government of President Yushchenko in 2004 that kind of dared to push away from Russia and pursue independent course things that Russia didn't like, again, primarily in domestic politics and only secondarily in foreign policy. So this um, dynamic that Maria referred to, that Russia pushing on Ukraine to try to vassalize it in all sorts of policy issues, not just foreign policy, and Ukraine resisting this really generates this, what we call in the book, escalatory cycle, kind of souring the relationship between the two countries. And only after that, souring the relations between Russia and NATO, when Russia gets to perceive these political processes in Ukraine, which were domestically driven, this Ukraine slowly pulling apart as Western meddling and kind of seeing this, what's happening in Ukraine is some sort of Western ploy against Russia instead of the process generated by Ukrainian domestic politics. And do you agree or disagree with my notion that Putin is more afraid of democracy and prosperity and a functioning state next door? Because after all, in contrast, he, he's the head of a mafia state where the Russian people have fewer and fewer freedoms. And now, of course, he's going to war against LGBTQ people, etc. So it's a miserable country from what I understand, particularly for anybody that believes in freedom. I think it's fair to say that the Ukraine that is democratic and prosperous and would be um, potentially dangerous precedent for Putin if we assume that at this point there could be some sort of domestic societal opposition that it was in Russia that would threaten him because this whole notion that Ukraine is very similar to Russia, that Ukrainians are really brotherly people. If, say, Ukraine successfully achieves democracy, stability, prosperity, Western integration, why can't Russia? So in that sense, I agree with you, but I think if we sort of look at, you know, as Maria said, Putin is not really afraid of anything at this point, because I think to the extent authoritarianism in Russia consolidated now, 
it is probably highly unlikely there could be some sort of domestic challenge to Putin from within Russia, even if Ukraine, say, becomes this precedent that some Russians might want to emulate. But in earlier years, yes, if we think about mid-2000s, even before 2014, that was probably at least part of the calculus, yes. But let me ask Maria first, and then you, Oksana, about the paradox that your book points out that the more Russia pushes, the more it produces a Ukraine, the exact outcome which Russian leaders want to avoid. So he's trapped himself in this negative dynamic. Um, so uh, is he going to wake up or has he woken up? Do you think he knows that it's not a good idea to have Sweden and Finland in NATO with a in a 1,300-kilometer border in Finland on the, on Russia? I mean, he he does, of course, of course he doesn't like it that uh, Sweden and Finland have joined NATO, but but the the calmness with which he has accepted this really uh, puts the nail in the coffin of the NATO expansion argument because it really demonstrates that he is not truly afraid of NATO. Uh, he doesn't think, actually, that NATO will use this new border um, that they have um, to attack Russia. He's not afraid of that. He does see that Ukraine is moving away, but the what we argue in the book is that Russia, blinded by this uh, imperialist uh, worldview really refuses to see any Ukrainian agency uh, in this uh, evolution. They refuse, even though uh, Ukrainian uh, presidents, even as far back as 2003, President Kuchma, who was a supposedly pro-Russian president, he straight up um, told uh, Russian newspapers the more you push us, the more we look westward for protection. Uh, this was uh, an interview over the um, Tuzla uh, Island incident at that time when Russia basically uh, tried to um, take over unilaterally uh, an island in uh, the Kerch Strait that belonged uh, by international law to Ukraine. Now, in that standoff, uh, Russia eventually uh, pulled back. But uh, the when President Kuchma explained that the more Russia pressures Ukraine, the more Ukraine looks westward, these are words that the Russian uh, elites overall refused to hear. They continued to perceive Ukrainian behavior um, as somehow steered by the West, by um by the US uh, most of all and uh started perceiving Ukraine as an anti-Russian project of the West aimed to weaken Russia. So uh they refuse really to see that Ukraine has its own agency in this process. And Oksana, just in closing, because it seems to me that it reinforces what I was saying earlier that he's that Putin started this war to be a wartime president, and he's turning Russia into a garrison state, and NATO is just an excuse. Yes, I think that's probably fair to say, and I would just add that, I mean, I think historians would study this very paradox that you talk about that we also identify in our book, that Putin is basically creating this quote-unquote anti-Russian Ukraine by his policies, and yet refusing to acknowledge that his policy actually produced this result. And it's really quite remarkable. And I think historians of the future would be trying to understand, you know, how they came to hold these beliefs. Uh, you know, there have been some speculation, what kind of literature Putin reads as far as history, like what was he spending time with, with whom during COVID and so forth. Um, but um, I think this inability, as Maria said, and we talk about it in our book as well, this imperial lens that denies any Ukrainian agency and sees it essentially as a Western project. And then, as you're saying, it allows in turn for this narrative within Russia that it is basically under siege, that there is this Western ploys on Russian border uh, trying to use Ukraine as some sort of platform or tool in this Western anti-Russian agenda does help then Putin to stay in power and generate these kinds of propaganda narratives domestically. Well, Maria Popova and Oksana Shevel, I thank you both for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you.
And again, I've been speaking with Maria Popova, who's a professor of political science at McGill University and the scientific co-director of the Jean Monnet Centre in Montreal, Canada. And also joining us was Oksana Shevel, who's a professor of political science and director of the International Relations Program at Tufts University. They are the co-authors of the new book just out, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining why Democratic leaders are not pushing back against Republican billionaire donors to the GOP who are targeting progressive House Democrats and are prepared to spend over $100 million to primary members of the squad and their allies. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. His latest articles at Slate include Biden's admission about his airstrike on the Hooties is unbelievable, and the squad is about to fight for its political life. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Salmon. Hey, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's pretty extraordinary that the squad is under attack and the three largest individual donors to this APAC-affiliated super PAC called United Democracy Project that are targeting them are longtime Republican big donors who've given the party millions. And here they are, the biggest spenders in the Democratic primary uh, back in 2022, United Democracy spent $26 million targeting eight of these progressive Democratic candidates. So in 2024, they're likely to spend a hell of a lot more, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, it's uh, the number that's been floating around is, is, is $100 million. It might it might be considerably higher than that. I mean, that that, that number was being talked about before October 7th. Um, so it's going to be very substantial. I mean, we're talking about, you know, expensive races. We're talking about going after incumbents, which is a, you know, is a, is a different, uh, it's a challenge of a different order, uh, and something that hadn't really done, uh, in 2022. So it's going to be a, a very, very substantial amount of money, um, across a number of races. And it's not just the squad that they're targeting, right? The squad has expanded a little. So they got, there's about seven or eight candidates they're targeting. Yeah, so we haven't seen the exact list so far. So I, I've been able sort of in conversations with people who are close to these operations, to some of the candidate work and campaign work and everything else, to sort of figure out who APAC has been recruiting for primary challenges. So we know a little bit, you know, where their interests are. So far, their only official endorsement in in these really high profile races has come in the Jamal Bowman race, which is New York's 16th district. Jamal Bowman is obviously one of the progressive incumbents who's, you know, he's if you're if you're talking about the squad as those core four women, Jamal Bowman is like the the one male sort of addition to the squad, to the squad extended. And he has a challenger now um, named George Latimer, who's a 70 year old white county executive um, from Westchester County. And he was both recruited heavily by APAC to run in this race and now has officially been endorsed by APAC as well. Um, and no coincidence is also now um, there's very recently a, a, a high dollar fundraiser announced for him. And it's being hosted by, of course, none other than a Republican mega donor. So all those things are not coincidental. Those are very much uh, just the, the sequence of events here. Well, one of the big Republican mega donors actually is in Bowman's in New York district. And that's Michael Leffel. He's donated a million to the United uh, Democracy Project, and he poured more than 1.2 million into Republican candidates and causes. And of course, the top mega donors backing APAC Super PAC are Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcus. Uh, he's given United Democracy Project two million, and then you've got Ed Levy Jr., who was who was a, the third largest donor in the first half of 2023, and he's donated tons of money as well. He's a construction magnate. I could go through the list, but they're all 
Republicans. So, and of course, you've got WhatsApp co-founder Jan Coombe and Paul Singer, who gives an enormous amount of money to the Republicans. He's their largest single donor, in fact. So how come the Democrats, and particularly the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, doesn't see that there's a problem here when Republican billionaires are trying to decide what Democratic candidates get elected? Right. I mean, it's it's so it's exactly that cut and dry, right? It's 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 literally just Republican mega donors are buying the outcomes of Democratic primaries. Uh, there there really is no more uh, nuance that needs to be added than that. And, and so, right. How can how can <laughs> if you're a de- in Democratic leadership, how can you countenance that that fact? It's it's a real challenge that Hakeem Jeffries is obviously is very, very close to the Israel lobby. It's it's. Uh, you know, he has been for years and years, his entire time in Congress. Um, that's been one of his top or, or his very top donor, depending on uh, the cycle in the year. He's got a very close relationship with them, so he does not want to cross them. Um, and there's no indication that he's going to. Uh, but he's also getting pulled in both directions, which is kind of interesting. So he has officially endorsed a number of these incumbent squad members, um, which you know, sounds like maybe not such a big deal, but it, but it is it is a pretty substantial coup for for them to get the official institutional backing of Jeffries and party leadership, because that means that they're also going to probably going to spend money on behalf of those candidates. So that's a good sign. If you know, if you're a progressive, if you're a squad member who's who's being targeted, you have some backing. They haven't they haven't you know cut and run and and left these members for dead. Um, but at the same time, it also underscores the inanity of this whole setup, which is that like. Uh, rather than saying like this sort of spending is not welcome in a democratic primary, like all of our members need to disavow this, which would be very easy to do, uh, they're instead saying, okay, we will spend a little bit to offset the impact of this Republican money in these races, which just means that like there are very finite resources for this election cycle, especially on the House side, and they're going to waste a bunch of money, or at least some money, you know, trying to offset this APAC spending when they could just say this spending is not welcome; they don't have to spend at all. So it's you know. It's sort of inching ever closer to this moment of confrontation, but for now, we're getting a very absurd version of this, which is that uh, it's everything is fine. We're just going to just spend a little money on both sides and just try to turn down the temperature. Well, obviously, APAC is in quite a state trying to figure out how to come up with a narrative that's going to stop the bleeding of support in this country for Israel, which has always been huge, uh, but now... 60% of Americans are demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. That's 80% of Democrats are in that figure. So they're sort of at at a loss, I think, at the moment. So it's obviously they're striking out. What's your sense of how much the war in Gaza is also driving this movement against progressives, particularly, I mean, they're looking for to recruit somebody to run against the only Palestinian, uh, Tlaib. Apparently they put up, you know, dangling $20 million looking for somebody to run against her. I mean, there's, there's a kind of element of desperation in spite of their enormously deep pockets. That's Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's, right, it's both this incredible show of force, which is $100 million or more is just a colossal amount of money. But it's also like you don't spend that if you're coming from a position of strength, right? They didn't need to spend that before because their position was much more popular, was much less controversial uh, prior to the war in Gaza. And, and or as you rightfully mentioned, like those polling numbers are are overwhelming. This is, you know, this position is incredibly unpopular. And so to make up the difference, they're, they're going to have to spend. And so it's both like, you know, this is a very deep pocketed and powerful organization that's, you know, primed to, to overcome these sorts of popular challenges. But at the same time, the reason they have to do that is because it's a very unpopular position and and it's actually more unpopular. And I think that they're in some sense weaker than they've ever been. And so I think both of those things are true. And, and in a lot of ways, like the outcome of this election cycle will will tell us really where they're at, because, you know, if they fail to, you know, to succeed in some of these campaigns, they're going to look very diminished. I mean, you know, the sort of the shock and awe factor, the, the fear that their name elicits in the halls of Washington is just going to be less uh, if if they fail. Whereas if they succeed in all these campaigns, then it's going to be like, oh, wow, it's not even worth it to criticize, uh, you know, Netanyahu. It's not worth it to say that the 
that there are, you know, humanitarian atrocities being carried out in Gaza. And so that's part of it. And, and of course, you know, the, again, the, the thing that's the both sides are true sort of element of this is also that some of this is being driven by by Israel policy and Israel in particular. But a lot of it, of course, is being driven by the fact that APAC just functions as a Republican extension at this point. Like this is just an organ of the Republican Party by and large. And so it's not just Israel policy, of course, it's all these other Republican priorities uh, that Republicans would be in a better position to effectuate uh, or to enact policy changes on uh, if they were able to get rid of the, the leftmost members of Congress. And, and so all those things are sort of true at once. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Alex, is APAC going the way of the NRA? Because the NRA used to have a lot of Democratic support, and but then became more and more right-wing uh, and corrupt, as a matter of fact. But is that happening? I mean, for example, APAC in 2022 endorsed 109 Republican members of Congress who supported the uh, insurrection and over, to overturn the results of the 2020 election and uh, keep Trump in the White House. So that's a pretty damning fact, I would say. Absolutely. And yeah, I think that that, that comparison is, is, is extremely apt because it's it's like easy to forget that the NRA, right, not that long ago was like, you know, one of these venerated bipartisan organizations that it was, you know, Democrats wanted the endorsement of the NRA. That was like a great thing to have on your resume in, in, in many races, in, in many parts of the country. And they would court that and they would be proud of that when they received it. And in just a handful of cycles, it went from being that to being, you know, this, this, again, this just sort of clearly partisan organ of, of the Republican party that, yeah, again, as you, as you wisely point out, uh, riddled with corruption, uh, scandal plagued left and right. And, and, and actually the, you know, the efficacy of the group also really waned the, the power that it influenced in Washington because it became so ridiculously, uh, aligned with Republican priorities and even extreme right Republican priorities. Um, and, that's sort of what we're seeing with APAC. I think I think it's a really strong comparison because, you know, it's one of these groups where in just a handful of cycles, like the thought of them, they didn't used to play in Democratic primaries, they didn't used to play in primaries at all. That wasn't the way that they operated. Now they're doing that. Now they're endorsing insurrectionists, uh, as you as you point out. And and uh, the operation has changed. And you can just see this in the staffing as well at the, at the highest levels of of the organization. It's not a handful of Democrats and a handful of Republicans. It's like people from the the innermost sanctum of, of the Trump organization who were you know the farthest right the most extreme people uh in his in his crew so um I think that you know again the outcomes will will tell us a lot but I think that there's a trajectory here that's very very similar to what we saw from the NRA and you know it's it, it happened pretty quickly in, in in political years uh that that transformation but just in closing doesn't the democratic leadership know that Netanyahu is only polling at 15% support within his own country, is dragging this war out as long as he can to stay in power and having Joe Biden twist in the wind and and Biden's numbers are going down as a result of his support uh, for Netanyahu. And, And there's no question that Netanyahu wants Trump to come back. And if Trump comes back, Jared Kushner is likely to be the Secretary of State. I mean, it's an appalling situation for Democrats. Why would they support this guy who's out to bring back Trump, along with Putin, who wants Trump? And we don't even know how much interference Putin's going to be up to in this cycle. So I just don't get it why the Democrats don't recognize where their real threats are and who their real friends are. It's it's pretty confounding. And, and you know, right, it's one of these things that you have to say rationally makes no sense. Um, it, it, you know, where the affinities are, where the battle lines are drawn, it should be very clear that that is the case. I think, you know, unfortunately, there's this combination of, of sort of fear and, and emotional attachment that has guided Israel policy and, and you know, the sort of orientation to the Israel lobby in particular, uh, overwhelmingly during this period. And so, right, like Joe Biden is obviously incredibly loyal to Netanyahu, despite the fact that it's a it's a it's an entirely self-destructive impulse. It's a, it's a it's a self-annihilating campaign for him to to hitch his wagon so entirely to Netanyahu, who's loathed in Israel, who has no loyalty to Biden um, and would be much happier to see him gone. Uh, that is, you know, it, it, it's confounding. But that's the sort of combination of these you know emotional attachments. Biden obviously is very old and has a very outmoded way of thinking about this particular thing. He also doesn't really care 
about you know foreign policy and Israel policy. If we look back on his time on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, he's not a terribly inspired thinker, thinker on this stuff, and he never has been. Um, and so it's just yeah, it's a combination of this sort of inertia of the old way of doing things, and and uh, and and you know fear of retaliation from the Israel lobby and its massive influence network. But it's just sort of ultimately confounding and, and frustrating and and uh and i think you're absolutely right those are plainly the stakes here and uh for whatever reason uh or for all those reasons uh leadership doesn't seem to to have taken stock of what that means well alexander salmon i thank you very much for joining us here today yeah thanks so much for having me and again i've been speaking with alexander salmon who's a politics writer at slate who has previously written for mother jones the new republic and the american prospect and his latest article at slate is the squad is about to fight for its political life this has been background briefing i'm ian masters and i'd like to thank producer graham fitzgibbon and assistant producer evan green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by